Negroes want the same things that white citizens possess. All of their rights. They want no reservations. They want complete equality, social, economic, and political. And no force under the sun can stem and block and stop this civil rights revolution which is now underway. You can never whip these boys if you don't keep you and them separate. I found that out in Birmingham. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. The civil rights era reshaped America, though it didn't solve the problem. Witness what's happening in Ferguson, witness what's happening in New York, witness the Voting Rights Act and the success it had for 40 years, and now the efforts by many states to roll it back. David Domke has been thinking about these things. He's traveled a few times already to the South. He has a lecture series, Marching to Selma, How MLK, LBJ, and the Civil Rights Movement Changed the World, and we're also going to be taking a trip to the South to go on this pilgrimage as well. And this is, this is important to you. This is something that hits you in your gut and your heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> it changed my life, really, when I went to, went to Birmingham, Alabama, and August of 2013 and stood at Kelly Ingram Park, which is where the fire hoses and the police dogs were, which is right across the street from 16th Street Baptist Church. And, and I stood there and I, there was this kind of epiphany moment where I said, this is where these things happened that I had only seen on TV. This is where these kids got hit by the fire hoses and the police dogs. And I, I just kind of was hit by that. And uh, that led me then to go to Montgomery and to Selma and to Jackson, Mississippi, and to Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the civil rights workers were killed, and then up to Memphis and so on. Um, so this has become the most important professional thing for me right now is, is diving deep into the racial realities of America, not out of a sense of guilt or a sense of, um, of uh, disaster, but a sense of determination that, that we are capable of doing much better you look at Ferguson, you look at New York, and you see the, you hear the reverberations all the way back to 64, 63? Absolutely. I mean, you, you're, the intro that you made here with the Voting Rights Acts as examples, what's happened in Ferguson, you look at the policing and the, the militarization of policing, those images don't look much different than what we saw in, in Birmingham, Alabama, or in uh, the police state of Mississippi, where they just would throw people in jail or kill you. They just would. Um, so what... What I think has caught everybody's attention right now with these situations is that it's 2014. Um, it's it, 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 it's w there was a sense among moderate whites in the 1960s that these bad things can't really be happening. But what? And then they began to realize that, and they began to kind of, to some degree, own up to that. I think that's kind of happening again now too. Is that so many people thought that we we're past a lot of these items, and we're clearly not. Right. The whole idea of Obama and the post-racial America comes right up smack into the face of what is institutional and social white privilege, and it still remains. Right. Yeah, the, the, the lecture series, what, it, what it, I'm trying to do is really two things. One is to peel back the, the, the successes that made the, the civil rights movement this monumental change moment in the United States. I mean, the things that happened and we, the progress we made in, in, from about early 1950s to the mid-1960s is, is, uh, was several hundred years in coming, took a lot of work to get there, but then happened very quickly in that span of time. So what happened in that period of time? And so I want to, the lecture series deals with that. But the lecture series also speaks today to, to how would we adapt that to now 
you know, how do, how do we take the strategies of the, of the 60s and the fi- late 50s and adapt that today? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, let me, let me tease that out a little bit. The first one, January 5th, is the rise, rise of nonviolence, you're calling it. So 55 to 61, when the groundwork was being laid, I think a lot of people didn't know the groundwork was being laid. Um, what, what, strikes you, what strikes you about that era, most of all? Sure. Well, the first lecture I've just about got it put together now because it's, it's coming up here. Um, you see the importance of, of, community, of a community in Montgomery that in the black community that had, uh, had always had kind of two groups. They had the working class and then they had the upper middle class that had come to terms with segregation, wasn't happy about it, but it made a good living nonetheless. And Ralph Abernathy and his leadership represented the working class and Martin Luther King Jr., when he came to Dexter Avenue in 1954 to the church there, he, he represented the upper class. But Abernathy and King were great friends. And so they brought the churches together and they brought the community together. And out of that, they also built, <clears throat> worked with the, the black middle class in town. So the first thing is you found a unification across economic lines. The second thing is you found you had, you had an organization that was building for several years before they they kind of made their moment before the moment happened. So we know about the Montgomery bus boycott in 55. Well, there was a women's political council that was started in 1946 that built these networks of structure around town that took nine years before they were ready to make it happen, right? And so we want it all now, today. So Ferguson, this disaster happens in Ferguson and protests occur and we're thinking like, well, it's been three weeks of protests. Shouldn't we have, if we're going to have anything, shouldn't we have like a law passed by now or, or something? And no, these folks in the 40s and the 50s and the 30s, they worked for hundreds of years, at least dozens. And then, and then they would take one step forward and, and two steps back and then they have to take two more forward. It was a movement. That's what the thing is. It's a movement. Today, that's what we have to do is if you, if you want this positive social change, you have to sign on. You have to sign on. So you had this kind of coming together across economic lines. You had long-term organizational capacity. You had a clear-eyed stra- strategy in that it was almost a cold-bloodedness to it of, of this person is the symbol we want to put out there and not this person. So Rosa Parks gets chosen as a symbol, right? There was about five other women before her that could have been the symbol that the, that the movement says no to, right? And so, well, we've got to be clear-eyed about that too, right? Right. I mean, uh, we had talked about how ACT Theater in Seattle is, is doing these Schenken plays about LBJ and Martin Luther King and J. Edgar Hoover. And the theme that runs through that is... King is bearing the burden because he is the one who is chosen to lead the way and guys like Baird Rustin, guys like Ralph Abernathy and James Foreman and the other guys from SNCC, Stokely Carmichael are, they're chafing at that but they recognize that that's important at the same time. They're, they're torn by it but they realize they have to convince a big country to shift its tracks. What, I, have you... Um, have you thought about these? I mean, you've thought about all these, right? Yeah. Showdown in Birmingham, Freedom yeah. Summer, Ascendancy of LBJ, Marching In, on from Selma. Let me ask you about LBJ a little bit. What We've seen these plays, Carol books, you've thought about him a lot. LBJ is a, is a remarkable <coughs> person in American history. He is Shakespearean, but he's also, he was what he said he was. He was a New Deal Democrat. Well, Lyndon Johnson is just a complicated 
crazy figure. Now, maybe all presidents are that way, and we just haven't scrutinized all of them that way. Because you have to be so ambitious to, to become president of the United States. And you also have to be so determined to be there. And you have to be humbled time and time again to get there, too. Because, you know, it's not one long ascendancy, these folks. So I think that Johnson is a good figure to kind of think about. Um, Johnson comes out of the hill country of Texas, first popularly elected Southern president in 100 years in this country when he gets reelected in 64. And, you know, he, the number of strategies and compromises along the way that he had to decide, like from the moment he runs for Congress in the late 1930s all the way till becomes president elect in 64, the choices he had to make in order to position himself to become viable as a Southern candidate. But in the end, he is, I think, all of these things. He is a New Deal Democrat. He brings electricity to the, uh, to the Hill Country, which is where the Great Society in Schenken's second place starts, where he's talking about when I, when I you know, who, nobody cared in the Hill Country that I lied once in a while when I brought him electricity, right? Nobody cared about that. And that's true. Nobody cared about that. Um, but then at the same time, he, he was this guy who supported the Southern power structure for forever. His first speech as a senator is about... Uh, the importance of the filibuster and why it is that the Southern Southerners need the filibuster, right? And, and so Richard Russell, the, the dean of the Southern Democrats, comes over and says, you know, you've done well, Lyndon, you know, with that speech. So all the way along the way, Johnson's making these compromises and these decisions. And so he's all of this. He's racist, as many are and were. He's also but driven for the little person fighting for them. I mean, he went down to teach in high school along the Mexican border, right? And taught this almost entirely Hispanic school and became a debate instructor there and taught these kids how to do debate when no one else believed in them, right? So, I mean, he, 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 he's just that, he's all this complicated way. But now in the plays, and this is important for the lecture series, is he does form this partnership with, with MLK at some fundamental level they understand each other, right? They both look at each other and say, those bastards, they don't appreciate us, right? They don't appreciate us. And we're being torn up, but they both, both are willing to kind of bear that cross, yeah. right? And that, that's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And you see that in King. You see it in Caro's books. You also see it in, in, um, in uh, uh, Garrow's books. What's his name? Yeah, David Garrow. David Garrow's books about King. You see that. Or Taylor Branch. Excuse me. Yeah, Taylor, Taylor Branch's, Branch's books, books. Yeah. yeah, Taylor Branch's books. You see that re willingness to accept compromise and to not be, uh, you know, uh, stopped by the because it's not perfect. You know, the enemy of the good um, is that w when you think about what you want people to take away, when you think about the f how we're, we're fed up with Ferguson. You know, the the other side of that is how people are fighting against those restrictions on the Voting Rights Act. I mean, those are long-term yeah. efforts that people are taking. So that, and that's sort of the essence of, because they have people had to accept compromises in these rollbacks. I mean, in these efforts to stop the rollbacks. Do you think that are there enough people who recognize, in in, in talking to people and looking at these histories, are there enough people who recognize just how much compromise is necessary to to get the two steps forward? I think that the, I think that we're in an, uh, an important historical moment. That the combination of the Supreme Court's decision in 2013 mm -hmm. in Shelby versus Holder to 
wipe away the fourth, fourth section of the Voting Rights Act. That combination, that combined with the Ferguson and New York killings or deaths of these young black men, um, in combination with this economic inequality that exists in our country, I think has, has, has brought together a coalition and a determination that I think is, is, is more powerful than any of those individually. So hmm. you've got somebody like, you've got someone who's just, you know, got well, becoming well known now in the national kind of uh, sensibility. This guy, Brian Stevenson from Montgomery, heads up Equal Justice Initiative. He's got this book on the bestseller list of New York Times um, called Just Mercy about the racial inequalities in our legal system. Well, I think that he's a f- early 50s-year-old man from the South who made a decision to dedicate his life to this work, right? And I think that he is an example of the kind of people that are here now. They're ready to do this, Harvard-educated, right, ready to do this. So they, they move in white power structure circles, but they also are deeply dedicated to racial justice work. And so the combination of the voting rights r- r- rollbacks and the, the deaths and the economic issues, to me, um, is, is actually the pieces that were all at work in the 50s and 60s. That, so there was nobody that was kind of existing in some fiction, if you were working for the cause of civil rights, that existed in any fiction of like, this is going pretty well. They knew that this is really hard. And so they were willing to constantly, constantly see the long game, right? The long game. So the NAACP had to work for decades to get to Brown v. Board of Education, right? Mont- Montgomery happens in 55, the bus boycotts, but the next major breakthrough is 57 in, in Little Rock, and then 61, 60 in the, in the sit-ins, and 61 with the Freedom Rides. Those are years apart, right? And so I think that what's happened in Ferguson and these national protests, and many of them in Seattle too, is if they can, be, if they can fold into a longer-term sensibility, then, it, then I think we've got a chance to really make some progress. Well, what's interesting about that is that, is that was that the problem with the, uh, the 99%? Was that the problem with that effort? Because people occupied parks in New York City, they went to Wall Street, but they, did they not have a long view? Is that what they lacked? I think they didn't, ha- they, didn't, they didn't have a long view because they didn't have an organizational structure that preceded this, whereas I think there are, there are civil rights groups that are, that are out there that can be that are coming together and there is the po- there is the kind of obama generation which is not not um schooled in the fire of the civil rights movement schooled at harvard but also um strategic and determined in ways that that they're not in the streets with those protesters so they're not james bevel but they're they have the wisdom to, to, to move in the kind of uh, political and legal circles in ways that are helpful, whereas the, the Occupy movement does not, did not ever have that. What's interesting about, about what you're saying, though, is that, for example, the, the, the conservative think tanks, that the whole structure that rose up out of the out of this with Goldwater in the 60s, but it really started taking shape in the 70s and in the 80s and then started to assert themselves through candidate choices through the 90s and even through to today and media choices and the whole structure yeah. that's in place. That was a long-term strategy that those folks undertook in response to what was happening, well, they would say the left, but with the civil rights movement. Um, it seemed like the left or even the civil rights movement uh, did 
fray a bit, fall apart, get loose, get fat, think we made it, right? So you're talking about a long-term response to what has been a very concerted effort over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, you've written about that when you write about the evangelicals in politics, right? Right. Yeah, what happened in the 60s and 70s is there were a body of religious conservatives that took the long view and said, we're going to we're going to lose elections and we're going to, but we're going to build a media group and we're going to work at the school board levels and we're going to build the family research council and focus on the family and we're going to make these these goals and we're going to compromise and we're going to support Ronald Reagan, who today they would not support because he's divorced and he, he nominates Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court. Today that they wouldn't accept that, but then they were, right? So I think that the that the left is notorious for for eating its own and kind of turning on itself in a way that the the right after the 60s said we're going to we're in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And so I mean in when in, this, in the lecture series which is every Monday every other Monday for for 10 weeks um, and it leads up to the to the 50th anniversary of the Selma marches from 1965. So it start the lecture series starts January 5th and runs through the end of February. Um, what it does is it attempts in each of the lectures to take a piece that, that was ultimately successful and, and was crucial for the movement's success and to kind of analyze those. Like, what did they do? How did they do it? Let's go into detail on exactly what they did. Because there is this narrative that Rosa Parks sat down and Martin Luther King Jr. stood up and the movement happened. No, not at all, right? I mean, King would often show up late in developments and become a very crucial leader, but he would not have started it, right? Um, and so I think that that for the first time, I'm feeling that there is that, that kind of sensibility, again, of, of the civil rights kind of coalition of, we ha- okay, Obama got elected, and then he just got buried, right? So, and then these people are getting killed, and this Voting Rights Act, which, which is absolutely the pinnacle of the civil rights movement, the Voting Rights Act, now it's now it's being taken down, right? So that we need to work every bit as hard and as long as, as essential. And you see young people committing to this too now. And so you, without those young people, you don't have the energy, right? So I think that that actually there is a chance, there's a moment, and that's part of what's driving my desire to do the lectures at this time and to lead these civil rights trips that I'm leading. Is that I feel, I feel I'm 47 years old, and I feel like. You know, this is the Selma moment really? for for us. Not like we're not there yet at Selma, but like we're building to, we're marching to Selma, right? And so to me, it feels it's more like the early 50s or mid 50s for me, but that I don't want 10 years from now to say, boy, I, I, I wasn't there and I could have been there. All right, well, what, what's the end game? What's the outcome? What's the goal? Because we could end up easily 10 years from now with a changed demographic in America, right? And there's more Latinos, there's more Asians, there's, there's, there's more blacks compared to whites, but we could still have a white power structure in place. Well, to me, that's the end goal, is that we don't have what you just described. The end goal to me is that we have a representative democracy so that... You're, what? <laughs> so that we actually don't allow a smaller and smaller white demographic to control power, which is what 22 states since 2010 have made voting rights laws changes in order to address these issues of changing demography. And, you know, there's been a University of California Berkeley study which shows that 
that the states that have the had the largest black turnouts in 2008 were the are you know are the states where they've had the most restrictive voting rights changes since right so my, the end goal here is to perfect the work that was done in the 50s and 60s so to me i think there is the pursuing the good and then there is the pursuing the perfection and we're building a more perfect union that's my goal here and so you had really hard work was done in the 1860s to get us to even like have a chance constitutionally right then it was rolled back for 100 years in the 60s we leaped forward again and then it's been under assault since then so now it's my it's my responsibility i believe this as a professor at the university of washington a tenured faculty member a white male with all the privileges you could have i believe it's my responsibility to say no we're, we're taking it forward again for all those who've come before us, for my kids who come after us, we're taking it forward because we need to build a more perfect union so that it isn't a smaller, smaller minority who are all white by coincidence, controlling a larger and larger emerging of color demography, right? So I think that, you know, Obama's presidency is completely symbolic of how this works. Great progress, one moment in time, under assault for years subsequently. And so then what do you do out of that? Well, you either duck and cover and walk away or you say, no, you know what? We're okay. We made progress and then we took four steps back because we were pushed back. And so now here we come again, right? And so I, I really believe this is the time. Yeah. I'm ending it there. Maybe we come back in two or three weeks when, you're, when you have the rest of those shaped. Sure. All right. Um, David Domke's lectures, Marching to Selma, How MLK, LBJ, and the Civil Rights Movement Changed the World, start January 5th, and they're January 19th, February 2nd, February 16th, February 23rd. You can find information by uh, all sorts of ways. Google University of Washington Domke Lecture 2015. Thank you, sir. Thank, thank you very much, Steve. It's not just the sheriff of this county or the mayor or the police commissioner or George Wallace. This problem goes to the very bottom of the United States. And you know, I said it today and I will say it again. If we can't sit at the table, let's knock the legs off, excuse me. And you misuse democracy in the street. You beat people bloody in order that they will not have the privilege to vote. You beat me in the side and then hide your blows. Well, go on. No, I don't we need to leave. We have come to register to vote. And you must realize that this is a national issue. It's not a Selma issue. It's not an Alabama issue. This is a national issue. Whenever anyone does not have the right to vote, then every man is hurt.